We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Aikman is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. Newton steps up, close to the end zone. Olsen! Touchdown by Moore. And in the foot race, McCaffrey to the end zone. Keep pounding on three. One, two, three. Keep All right, Panthers fans, let's get this done. We've got some wrinkles to share with you on the roster battles. We've got some insight, some intel from league sources about what's going on with Jeremy Chin. Plenty of stuff coming your way here as we continue to observe a very uh, dynamic practice session uh, a couple of days here with the Indianapolis Colts. The Panthers are in Indiana right now in advance of their preseason opener Sunday against the Colts. Hey, it's John Ellis, Blue Wire, the Roar Podcast. Thanks for making us a part of your Panthers preparation experience here and listening to us. Billy Marshall, my main man on the mic, is not here today. He should be back next week. Billy has taken some time, well-earned time this summer, to travel the globe a little bit. And uh, he's still on the road, so Billy and I talked a little bit a couple days ago, traded some thoughts on camp, and uh, he's got a lot to talk about with respect to his thoughts on the positional battles, some things he likes, some things he's got questions about. So Billy Marshall is still very much with us, and we'll be back hopefully next week. But until then, you got to settle for me flying solo. We're going to do it this way uh, this week, and then next week we're working on a guest lineup uh, with or without Billy. I don't know what day Billy's going to come back, but we're working on maybe getting you guys uh, lined up with a couple of guests who are are a little more in tune with the day-to-day beat writing process with this team and uh, possibly an analyst from uh, one of the other teams as well. There's, we start to look forward to some NFC South previews coming up here on Blue Wire. Let's talk camp, okay? So this is coming to you late on a Friday night. You'll probably be picking this podcast up early Saturday morning. With that, we'll start with the most recent action, which of course was a bonanza of a practice. Uh, <laughs> a fascinating Twitter follow today between uh, our friends Joe Person, Darren Gant, Bill Voth. Uh, the team account was posting mostly clips and, and fluff, but you were getting some good firsthand accounting from some of the folks on the ground there, uh, which, which made me 
stop and think, okay, what kind of practice is this turning into? And what I'm talking about, of course, is some of the, you know, some would say fights, some would say pillow fights, <laughs> uh, depending on which era of football you come from. I talked to a player who played uh, back in the early 2000s, and they <laughs> they laughed a little bit and said, these guys are doing one practice a day. We did two a days. This was like an average Thursday for us. Anywho, if you didn't catch it, here's kind of what happened. The Panthers uh, Thursday started uh, practicing with the Colts. They've done this before under Ron Rivera. They did it in the 2015 against the Dolphins. 2019, I was there as the Bills came to town here in Spartanburg. And uh, that was a physical, dynamic practice between a couple of very physical teams. And I think Buffalo, uh, to me, showed some things that exploited Carolina's protection issues, which were predominantly on the left side. Darrell Williams, uh, Greg Little is a rookie. But in any event, they're doing it again. They're doing it twice this season. They might have to rethink that strategy because uh, the accounting we got from camp, again, I'm down here in Spartanburg. I do not travel with the beat guys. Uh, not in this economy. <laughs> Somebody wants to pay me to do it, I will. But uh, for our work with Fansided that we're putting together right now, I've got a couple articles set to be uh, filed and released later this weekend. And with uh, Blue Wire, iHeartRadio for Clemson, uh, and with three kids. I'm right here doing the work from home. I digress. Practice has been weird in Indianapolis. Okay, so here's what we can tell you. Following reporting throughout the day, you got to get a sense of, okay, the the practice tempo between this team and that team. There are some differences in how one team is coming after the other team. And and the sense I got from reading some of the quotes and comments, and I'll share one with you via Joe Person's article, from uh, Sam Darnold, a very, uh, what I I thought was not so tame comment, was they kind of came in the first day on that Thursday and maybe punched in the mouth a little bit, maybe didn't expect the level of physicality and and, and hitting the ground as much as they did. And that's one of those things we talked about in advance of this joint practice is there's always communication in advance typically between the football ops folks, you know, the equipment folks. And then you would imagine the head coaches at some point, either through their people or directly, have a quick phone call and just sort of have an understanding of general guidelines on how to make this thing work. Because I, growing up as a kid, way back when, I'd seen joint practices happen, and I would scratch my head. It's like, these guys hate each other. I think there's going to be fights. This is, But you learn after over time these are all professionals and the guys are friends across the league well this was a bit of a throwback to my old fears that there would be a couple teams that didn't like each other it's a very strange type of uh, situation because inherently these teams don't have too much cross channel action going on here uh indy and carolina play each other once every four years last time they met was 2019 in a game that perry fuel coached on an interim level and brian burns was playing gunner and Will Greer started. It was not pretty. Um, Bernie Butler, ironically, flipped off a fan and got ejected that day. It was horrible. But over the years, Indy and Carolina haven't had a lot of history. Frank Reich, one of the the, the good, truly good guys of the NFL, wholesome guys, really just a a, a nice man, but also a competitor. Um, And Eberflus, the defensive coordinator, is, is very much the same. Matt Rule, it's hard to really gauge uh, what relationship he has with uh, with coaches around the league. I think that's something that continues to involve. But um, here's the deal. 
they came in and, and you know, Indy, I, I wouldn't say they put a licking on them, but, but Indy in that first practice Thursday sort of overwhelmed Carolina in some departments, in some areas. And in terms of the physicality, it was sort of a, a cold splash of water in the face, if you will, that got the team refocused. And this was the quote from Sam Darnold via Joe Person at The Athletic. You can find him at Joseph Person, by the way, and he does great work. Subscribe to The Athletic. We can share with you this quote um, talking about the physicality from the cold side. Quote, I think the physicality Thursday, things were getting chippy. So I think for us, it was kind of like, all right, that's how it's going to be. And we responded well today, end quote. To that point, um, Matt Rule had talked a little bit about some of this after the game, but primarily he shifted the focus to the strategy for playing time distribution on Sunday's preseason opener. We'll get to that in a minute. Of course, as you guys know, Rule has already said uh, starters are not going to play in that game. Um We'll see if that holds up. I would imagine it does. And he went into some reasoning on that in his presser today. We'll talk about those comments in just a second and share some thoughts. But today's practice, my goodness. <laughs> Again, from, from Joe Person's recap, and I use his as a reference because he pulled a great quote from Brian. Here's the lead on Joe Person's article. Again, go to theathletic.com, find Joe's section, and subscribe. Here's the lead. When Clubber Lang was asked for prediction in Rocky Three. The boxer, played by Mr. T, grumbled a one-word response. Pain! When Brian Burns was asked his thoughts about Friday's joint practice with the Colts, the Panthers' defensive end gave his own one-word response, quote, chaos. And that's uh, an excerpt from Joe Person's recent uh, write-up about the 15 things he learned at uh, Panthers-Colts uh, dual practices. Brian was right. I was following Twitter, as many of you were, and it started to take a shape uh, of its own after a minute, uh, to the point where I, and I'm not too concerned now after, again, I've talked with a couple of people around the league, one of whom is within the organization, and then I obviously read Joe's work, read some other write-ups from uh, the site, and I started getting the sense, you know, initially... This seems sloppy. This feels amateurish. This is not a good use of their time. They're traveling all the way to Indianapolis for joint practices. Day one, they got kicked around a little bit by all reports. It was not their crispest practice offensively. Sam didn't look great. And then day two, fights are breaking out. And it all kind of started. uh, We go back in the Twitter timeline here. The Twitter timeline here, um, it was a shit show, guys. (laughs) At least in terms of the way Twitter uh, reported it. And Twitter, meaning the the reporters through Twitter, a tweet sometimes can be misinterpreted based on tone, um, context. I'll say that, you know, everybody at camp did a good job of helping us understand what was happening on site and painted a good visual, although the visuals has been... Somewhat restricted, the fans, in this case, uh, my understanding is from talking to one follower on Twitter, were not allowed to do any photography or any videoing or any anything at all that would indicate a recording device during camp. And, of course, working with the media here now, I, I can tell you firsthand, in the Panthers world over in Walford, if you're not credentialed, you're pretty much free to shoot whatever you want. You can film, you can live, there's a guy there live streaming. One of our good friends, and uh, 
look, if you do that, you're probably not going to get in their good graces and work your way into credentials, which we're there now. So I have to honor sort of, and, and you know, if I don't, obviously I'm, I'm breaking policy. You honor the policies that are in place. And right now it's a little bit restrictive as far as uh, not just independent journalists like myself, but, you know, established ones, beat writers that cannot even take pictures during 11 and 11s. And you have to be careful about, you know, videoing stuff too long. Anyway, that was part of the problem today is there was a lot of information coming in um, on paper or on Twitter, I should say, in print that gave a certain impression of what was going on there. And the impression I got is things might get a little out of hand. Things might get a little bit out of hand with a couple teams in a, in a hot-ass middle of the August type of situation in the middle of Indiana figuring themselves out as a team. It all started with Joe Person's tweet around, um, let's see, 4.50 p.m. Big scuffle on the defensive field. Colts took offense to either Shaq Thompson or Jeremy Chen knocking a running back to the ground near the sideline. Um, that was the first one I got uh, in terms of like, okay, well, you know, there's a little scrum. Um, and then Stephen Holder, also from The Athletic, had tweeted out, and he covers the Colts for that publication, fight, exclamation point, big scrum after a Jordan Wilkins run, ended with a huge pile of bodies and a fair number of punches thrown. And Holder does great work, a great reporter. He's not going to throw shit on the wall to, to get clicks. He's one of the good ones. So when I saw a fair number of punches thrown, guys, bodies on the on the you know ground, and it, that, that felt like, okay, this is the second update we've got on a camp practice that has nothing to do with schematics or mechanics or routes or, or how matchups are looking or, or anything relevant. It, 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 the intensity, look, I get it. The energy level, it's great to have that. And I've got more thoughts on that in a few minutes. But this continued. So Joe Person, you know, follows up with another update and another fight on the defensive field. Coaches need to really reel this in. Um, Stephen Holder, Joe's counterpart there with the Indy Athletic, Michael Pittman is out here headhunting these DBs in the running game. Comma, who did not appreciate it? LOL. And that was his tweet uh, on Michael Pittman. Um, looking to retaliate. That became a little concerning. And you're starting to get visions in your head, at least looking at fans reacting and commenting. And the thought that came to mind was that this is like an OBJ Norman type of situation where you're going to see something that's going to have to require some intervention. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know if the coaches eventually pulled everybody aside collectively and said, look, all of us, we have sort of an agreement here, gentlemen's agreement. We're not going to act like assholes and take each other out. If we scuff a little bit, that's fine. But I'm not sure that conversation ever happened. I think things just broke up and they regrouped and went back after it. Um, so just a cr little chronology of what continued to happen. Joe comes back with a tweet after this. While I was keeping up with the defensive field, Colts were taking Christian McCaffrey and others to the ground on successive plays. The Panthers' offensive line intervened. That's Joe Person on another update. And then here comes another one. <laughs> Trainers looking at Robbie Anderson's left leg. Joe chimes in with that. Darren Gant as well. At that point, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, okay, we've got punches flying. We've got McCaffrey getting knocked to the ground when he's not supposed to be. Sam's back there in the red jersey, hopefully not getting himself hurt. And then Robbie's limping around. He's got a leg issue. And you start thinking, man, is it all going to... 
it's going to be one of those days where things do get out of hand and there's not the the the, the veteran presence. It's what we talked about in the Mac attack with Chris McLean and our good friend Bone on WFNZ. Yeah, Bone brought up the point, hey, there's not the vocal leadership you used to see with a uh, Keekley, but especially like a Thomas Davis, Cam Newton, Greg Olson, Trey Boston, guys who would regulate vocally. It's a quiet, cerebral group. So, hey, when things start to get a little bit out of hand, who's the guy that jumps in and, and resolves it? Sounds like it was Jeremy Chin. We'll get to that shortly as well. It sounds like Chin is sort of taking on that role, not just vocally, but but just as, a, as an intimidating specimen and somebody who can hurt you in a number of ways physically. Um, he's becoming quite the threat in terms of being the Mike Mentor type of enforcer for the defense. Um, many of you don't remember Mike Mentor. I get it. You're not as old as I am. But look up Mike Mentor, coach of uh, Campbell right now. Um Minter did a great job regulating. Chris Harris did a great job of that. You always need one of those DBs to be able to, to, to put their best foot forward and to lay somebody the hell out or to put themselves on the line for uh, their teammates. And I've, I've got some information on Chin that'll make you smile. Um, so practice from there started winding down. Mike Salardi, our friend from uh, Charlotte there who does reporting, I asked Coach Rule about specifics on Tuesday in Spartanburg. Um, regarding practicing, and Solardi wrote, said this was not what they were about, and they would, quote, act like pros. And that's, again, Mike Solardi's reporting on what Joe Rule, or what, uh, sorry, Matt Rule had told media before this trip that they were going to act like pros. Matt has been, you know, Mr. Serious, Mr. This is a serious football place. Um, we want guys to be ultimate pros. Without the advantage of actually seeing what the hell happened today visually. Um, somebody asked me today, what's your take on it? You know, is it is Matt lost a little bit of handle on his group? Is this concerning? Is it good? I don't think it's going to make a huge difference one way or another. Every year you see something like this happen in a training camp, and it very rarely is the tipping point between, you know, a team that's going to make it or a team that's not going to make it or whatever it might be. Uh, much is made of that 2015 fight. We reposted that clip that I, I didn't take, by the way. I don't know who the hell took it, but um, it's on YouTube, I think. It's a clip of uh, Josh Norman and, and Cam Newton famously in the bottom of the uh, bottom left corner of, of the Wofford facility down there in the shade. Uh, Cam taking Nor uh, Norman out to the ground and smiling while doing it and having some words back and forth. And a lot of folks attest that to sort of the the galvanizing force that helped that team go 15-1. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> maybe. You'd have to ask guys in that locker room if they, they believe in that. Maybe they've already said it. Um, but, yeah, you know, look, it's hard to know. This is something else from the Colts Wire, um, which is the USA Today affiliate. We'll read you this little passage. Head coaches Frank Reich and Matt Rule tried to get out in front of this on Thursday, having the captains meet before the first joint practice got underway. Things were a bit chippy even during that practice, but no fights broke out like they had on Friday. And this is referring to Thursday. So there was a growing sense from all the reporting I've read from, from the USA Today side, from the Athletic, uh, the Observer, you know, folks on site for, for you know, radio, television. There was a sense that there was some 
chippiness going on Thursday and it was a little bit sloppy and there was no real outburst and no real you know moment of, of, of truth when it came to dropping gloves and going after it. But so much so that it concerned the coaching staffs enough. They got together, got proactive, had the captains hook up and chat that thing over. And <laughs> that didn't seem to work because uh, they, they had a few tussles today. But at the end of the day, nobody seemed to get hurt from it. Um, and it kind of just got forgotten about. So there was a lot made of it for Twitter. Maybe it's a prime example of, okay, perhaps it wasn't quite as bad as our sensitivities give us the feeling that it might be these days. Um, our view of this game has changed dramatically over the past decade, folks. And you don't even notice it because it's like watching your kids grow up. Every day it's so gradual, you don't really see it. But man, if you had taken yourself out for 10 years, put yourself in a coma, right before that new CBA got uh, pinned in 2011, you go back to two days of practice, the afternoon practices and the morning practices and you know the, the high contact um, practices being still on the table at a more frequent level. Uh, I think we tend to, this day and age, I, I won't say we're snowflakes, folks. We, I don't talk like that. <laughs> I think it's a stupid way of looking at life. But I think to a degree, the game of football has softened up a little bit, has become by necessity more of a cerebral game, more of a game centered around situational football analytics and smart preparation and less of an emphasis on physicality so when this type of sort of as joe person mentioned testosterone <laughs> heavy practice i call it a pissing match you basically get you know a guy marking his territory the colts they had panthers come to town they marked their fucking territory so they pushed carolina around a little bit and carolina didn't like that they probably met up and as Darnold said, Darnold of all people, uh, mild-mannered Sam Darnold, had said, look, we weren't going to accept that. We're going to come back and get physical today. To that point, let's give you a sort of a rundown of some of the highlights from camp as we were able to follow along with it a little bit from some of our league insiders and, of course, uh, some of the great beat reporters out there. What I gathered today, again, it's it's a little too early still to, to pluck something from your own observations at camp or from observations from trusted analysts and say, oh, you know what, that is a great point, and I think that player is going to start there for sure, and then they've got the answer here. No, I think after the first preseason game, even though Matt Rule has mentioned the starters will not play, you start looking at the second level. It's going to be fun to watch some of these guys who are fighting for starting jobs get a chance to play. More on that in a second. Just to sort of put a cap on what went down today, some things we heard from Joe Person. Um, Jeremy Chin, as he writes, proved as a rookie that he can do a lot of things on the football field and showed he could be a little edgy if needed. Uh, to that point, as we go down further into Joe's uh, article here, which you can find right there on theathletic.com, Chin, um, and we're just going to paraphrase this, and we had seen some other reports on this as well, Chin was very involved in terms of the physicality today. Um, and and from what I gather, from what I've read, and again, Joe Person did a nice job in his write-up of underscoring some of the specifics. Um, you know, Matt really talked about in his pressers about the physicality aspect and things being a little bit soft. I mean, those weren't his words, but he pretty much could have said that, that they were too soft 
Um, Chen apparently had sort of a maniac type of day out there, but in a controlled violence type of way. Um, there was a horse collar tackle that he was credited for. <laughs> uh, you don't want to see that. I mean, there's part of my dilemma here. He was back in his hometown. I mean, he's from the area. He was feeling himself. That's a good thing. You want your center fielder back there with that Steve Atwater, you know, bloodline who can thump people but can also range and move. You want him with high energy. You want him, you know, getting after it. But you also want him in his comfort zone being himself. What has Matt Rule talked about so much, guys, over this camp? Being yourself. Being your true self. Don't changing who you are. Matt made a point of going out of his way in his first, one of his first pressers here in Spartanburg when they went to Gibbs Stadium and they practiced in front of a larger crowd. Matt made it, I think, a little too much of an issue personally. The messaging was good, but the, or the, the message itself was good. The messaging, I think, was unnecessary to the press where he said, now I find it interesting, by the way, I don't mind him giving us quotes. But I found it interesting in that, in general, he had said, look, I told our guys, you know, there's a lot of energy, you guys on the ground, um, don't change who you are. Don't change who you are because of a circumstance. Then again, it sounds like they came in Thursday, got smacked around a little bit, and they sort of had to change their mindset for this practice session. So it's easier to, you know, I, I think Matt's probably nuanced enough with communicating with his guys that there's not one-size-fits-all rules that apply across the board. Look, sometimes you got to change things up. And does a horse collar tackle mean the world right now? No, it doesn't. It's a it's a larger issue for me. You don't want to get this young team out of focus. If Indy is getting chippy, fine. Let them get chippy. Stay focused, be tough, keep practicing. But if there was a sense that, hey, we were going to get out there and, and really mix it up, that takes away valuable reps in practice time from my view. And I've talked to a couple of folks who've done this for a living, playing football, coaching the game on an assistant level, scouts who are out there who know these coaches. And there's mixed opinions about, you know, the the intensity level today, and is that a positive, negative, or doesn't mean a damn thing? I lean between negative doesn't mean a damn thing, but it might be a great positive. They might look back and say, you know what, that that hot-ass day in Indianapolis where we took it up a notch when we were told, hey, be yourself, stay true to yourself. When we took, we kind of changed our, altered our approach mentally. Was that a good thing? Did that take them to a level they didn't think they could unlock? Did that unleash some leadership qualities on guys like Burns and Chen that that uh, sort of like a, a dimension they had not tapped into yet? Or is it just chaos? <laughs> I think that's what you got to look at in situations like that as a coach. I'm fascinated by Matt Rule's first year as a preseason head coach of course he didn't have a preseason last year he's got games now to prepare for and uh to that point let's look forward to what that game is going to look like by the way pj walker continues to look really good that's the 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 overwhelming reporting we got today um and dan arnold it, it has just i mean we know the usual suspects dj moore robbie anderson uh, Terrace Marshall has been really good at camp, ladies and gents. David Moore has been solid at camp and has a potential role as a punt returner on this team. Shai Smith is a young guy with, with, again, he had a bit of a mean streak today too. I saw him out there um, from some of the tweets talking, you know, about being physical. 
And then John Miller, by the way, the right guard for this team, telling fans to pretty much shut up and get the hell off his back, and there was some back and forth there. Just seemed like uh, a sort of a comedy of errors at time, mixed in with some uh, some occasional moments of, of, you know, hey, we're coming to blows here. It might get kind of out of hand. In any event, uh, let's take you back a couple days and give you a couple observations from the old notebook here on Panthers camp from earlier in the week because, believe it or not, it hadn't been uh, but a couple of days since they have been here in Spartanburg. Feels like it's been longer. But, uh, of course, Robbie Anderson came back. He was out uh, with some personal stuff he was tending to. But uh, we saw Robbie back in action. Looked sharp, looked good. Uh, you know, practice, I, I, I will get back to the, the specific player evaluations in a minute. Camp practice has been fluid and impressive, and there have not been moments where you step back and say, you know what, there's no real direction here. Um, some camps are more structured than others. When you have a more veteran group, you know, you. I felt like Ron's camp gave players, the vets, more freedom. It wasn't sort of a, okay, you're the same guy as him. We all play by the same rules. You know, we're all one team. I think Rivera did a little bit of the Jimmy Johnson, and I think wisely so, that, you know, Cam Newton might show up 30 minutes late or 20 minutes late. But we know Cam Newton is a little different. And he certainly got the, the, you know, bull by the horns in terms of this position. As that began to decline a little bit, maybe Matt Rule said to himself, you know what, <laughs> I'm not dealing with a guy after his 30th birthday who's dealing with, you know, reconstructive, you know, potential issues on his shoulder, and then you've got a you know, thing with his foot, and who knows the trajectory he's on now, and, and plus, he's not a fit for what I want to do. So... Camp structure is very important to Matt Rule. Another thing about Matt that I'm finding positive is his coaching style, communication style. Everyone is different. When I covered Ron Rivera's first camp, I was privileged to do that for the entirety of camp, and that was also Newton's first camp with the team. Greg Olson was in his first uh, season freshly uh, traded from Chicago. Uh, Ron was very quiet. Um, but he stepped in in moments where he felt like he needed to take command, and he had a good sense of, of how to balance that. But it was not easy for him in the beginning, I don't think. It felt a little bit awkward. He did not, I don't think, have a good command, as good of a command as he eventually did once we got into the 2013 winning streak that pretty much cemented his legacy over the next few years, kept him there. A lot of people get on Ron about being a bad coach. A lot of folks criticize Ron on Twitter. I, I don't pay much attention to that because Ron, I think, is a very good coach with a not only a playing background but an extensive background working with uh, some of the best defensive minds on the planet, including the late, great uh, Jimmy Johnson. Uh, Jim Johnson, who uh, was the Eagles defensive coordinator for years, Rivera learned at the knee of some greats, you know, look, Buddy Ryan, as a player, learned from Ditka, the art of managing a team and demonstrating a certain level of toughness. But Ron had a style about him, and I remember watching the first preseason game, I believe it was against the New York Giants in 2011, and John Fox was always my style of coach, my type of coach, sort of a Bill Parcells, Pete Carroll type of 
<laughs> if you could put the two of those guys in a factory and plug them into one DNA, it would be John Fox. Some of the Parcells, you know, New York Giants ties, defensive guy, gritty guy, but also a little more of that Nicorette chomping, gum chomping, high energy that Pete Carroll would bring. A lot of similarities there. Foxy was a sideline hound, okay? Uh, he was always front and center. He was always there with Jim Skipper by his side, the longtime running backs coach. I spoke with Deshaun Foster earlier this week. We had looked at the old playbook from 2005. By the way, you Google it, it's online. There's resources where you can download it. But uh, the old playbook from 2005 had a huge section about clock management, and, and Deshaun was like, hey, that's Jim Skipper. That's Skip right there. That was uh, his his idea to do all that, and or his brainchild to, to be the clock management resource guy. The point of that is, you know, Foxy, Mike Turgovac, that whole staff on the sidelines had a very different presence than Ron Rivera. It took me a while, I'm sure it took some of the players a while, held over, to get used to his style. Matt Rule, um, to me, he does have a certain quality about him that when, when people talk about this guy is special, I had wondered all offseason quietly, and I didn't say much about this because I didn't want to come across as being an asshole or being presumptive, but I did wonder myself, okay, this is a guy who did turn around a program at Temple, gave them some success. Baylor was a mess. He came in and, and helped, along with others too, but he, he helped regenerate that program into an elite competitor. He then leaves that program, comes here, and I asked people around the league, what is Matt Rule's MO? What is his signature? Okay, with Parcells, it was obviously his experience working on every facet of the game, offense, defense, special teams. But really, it was his grit and toughness through his time as a young coach and his, his ball-busting mentality. Uh, Belichick, what were his traits? Well, you know, of course, his dad was a longtime coach and scout, um, and, and Bill spent his formative years in the film room as a kid learning how to break down tape, and he became a boy wonder. And that boy wonder mentality, as a communicator, he was oftentimes looked at as a little bit weak and a little bit meek. And this is back in a time where football looked at people like Bill Belichick as, oh, he doesn't look like a football coach. This nerdy-looking guy, and you know, he's, he, yeah, he looks like Bob Costas' taller, older brother. Uh, you know, Lawrence Taylor used to tell stories about Belichick and just that oh, piece of shit. I ain't going into practice. Bill Parcells is my coach, not Belichick. But Belichick eventually found his way, and his style of communicating worked just fine. Matt Rule's communication style goes a lot like this: when they run eleven on elevens, when they're running no huddle, hurry up concepts. Matt is not standing back as sort of a um, as sort of a CEO type. Uh, I've observed coaches before that would, and George Seifert was the king of this. <laughs> Some coaches stand way back and they let their coaches coach, and they're observing, and they're they're formulating their thoughts. And then when the time's right, they come in and make their statement. And a lot of it, I think, some coaches have talked to me about being involved versus being a more passive coach. In a way, some view that is facilitating uh, a, a culture of uh, empowerment to your assistants. I want to say Ron was more like that than probably Matt, um, at least by 
the communication side because Ron did very much allow his guys to coach. He allowed his assistants, his coordinators to really coach. Rule is not a meddler. Uh, it's just he's in the middle of it. Like they're running 11 on 11 hurry up stuff. The pass is complete and he's yelling at somebody right away, but it's an instructive yell. For instance, it, there was one play where they were running a, it's called Red Ball. We've talked about this before. Red Ball is two-minute warning, two-minute drills, hurry up. We only have this many timeouts, this situation. We need this many points. We have this far to go, and we have to get out of bounds before this marker or after this marker. There are specific situational elements called out by a coaching assistant with a megaphone. Ball snapped. Dan Arnold catches a little pass in the flat. And does not get out of bounds. And right away, Rule catches. Rule is two steps ahead and catches it and is ready to come to him with a teaching point. And he screams at first, doesn't make him run the lap, knows he's a veteran. He's not going to chew Dan Arnold out, who's about a foot taller than him, but comes up very close to where we were standing there observing practice and, and made it a point to tone it down from the yell back to teaching voice, teaching mindset, teaching mode. And to explain to him, okay, Dan, in that situation, we have this many seconds left. We're down by this much. You have to get out of bounds. If you don't get out of bounds, the clock runs out, and we lose this game, and we don't go to the playoffs. That's the type of communication. Getting his team in the mindset, thinking in those terms, in terms of situations, time on the clock, what quarter are we in, what are the implications if we don't get out of bounds. If we happen to not get out of bounds, how fast must we get up? It's just everything is is really well-defined in terms of that part of their hurry-up situational football practice. The red zone stuff has been impressive, too. Um, to that point, they ran a lot of red zone situational football last week. They ran a lot of goal line stuff, heavy formation, 21, 22, 23 personnel. Uh, banging a little bit, and that looked good on both sides. Hard to really tell. Oh, who are your winners and losers on the offensive line from the, the power running drills? I don't know. I can't see a fucking thing. <laughs> so, I, nobody knows. Nobody knows yet. The, the winners and losers thing, look, yes, there. you can write an article or you can do a segment on your newscast saying there's three guys that they're rising stock and falling stock. I'm even doing one of those this weekend. But uh, I'll say this. Here's whose stock is rising for me. It's Matt Rule and Joe Brady. Because quite honestly, everything they're doing as coaches, and it's fundamental stuff. They're not breaking ground. But I enjoy watching them coach and teach this group. Um, I fancy myself a football analyst with a good deal to learn, but has also taken years of his life over the past 20 years and learned the game gradually through books, through resources, through people with whom I've connected, through playing just a couple of snaps of football when I was a teenager, but understanding enough about the game through those early years to, to want to learn more every day. And it's been very instructive from my end to have a closer view look at practice not to photograph it, not to video it, but to hear the sounds, to hear the tempo, to see what type of cadence, and to hear the cadence that Dan or, or that uh, Sam Darnold has in shotgun. What's the cadence and count sound like under center? 
um, who are making line calls, who, what linebacker is in control of lining people up. What are we seeing in terms of players communicating with one another um, in moments where maybe somebody messed up? Who's the leader in that department? On defense, look, Jeremy Chin continues on the back end to be that guy that will take a moment to help other guys understand where they need to be. Dante Jackson had a moment at camp, guys, where he pulled the team aside. It, at least the defensive unit, and very vocally expressed his concerns about a certain element of practice that wasn't up to his standard, but also positively reinforced to some of the younger corners out there and younger guys on defense that let's just get back after it and get, get better. That was a big moment, I thought, for Dante Jackson, who has shown uh, flashes at times in terms of athleticism and consistency, but had some clumsy moments, some would say, in that first season on that uh, All or Nothing show where it seemed like he had a hard time understanding, you know, veterans trying to help him through you know, growing pains as a player. It's, it's hard. That's theatrical stuff. I, I think Horn has been a very good presence for that perimeter on defense. He's physical. He does have an ability to grab sometimes, a propensity to grab sometimes. That can become problematic. But you start with that as a foundation, and you can work a little bit back in terms of the grabby, the handsiness. You don't want to go in passive and then have to teach a guy how to be more physical. So let's start physical. Get a flag or two. Look, we'll work at sort of tightening up some technique to where the hands aren't as important, and it's more about mirror techniques and then using all of your body and all of your assets to play good man coverage you got to use your hands but it gets a little bit (laughs) a little bit handsy sometimes it's a rookie for you uh but camp in spartanburg once again was i thought very crisp very good there were some very positive things that they can take away terrace marshall jr on the offensive side of the football just continues to look like we thought he would look after he was chosen in the draft. Uh, Billy Marshall and I had talked about this, and we both agreed that Terrace had the ability to be versatile, to be multiple. He has since played the slot at camp. He's played the boundary X. He's also moved around a little bit in motion. So he's shown what we had talked about with Greg Cosell, Matt Bowen, during the summer regarding his LSU tape. That, you know, yes, some people have concerns maybe that he's got to get more polished and that even some would say in some scouting reports out there, there were some times where the concentration or level of interest lapsed a little bit. Well, I can't speak to that because I haven't watched enough long-range film cut-ups of Terrence at LSU, but I've seen the general pieces of his work, not only from a good perspective, but some of the plays that weren't so great, and then the run blocking. The run blocking... I wouldn't say it's elite yet. There are some parts of his game as a run blocker on tape at LSU where he did not fulfill his full potential. He's 6'2", 200 plus, almost 6'3". He's got tremendous upper body strength, great body control, good agility. He needs to do all he can do, whether he's got to get on the goddamn phone and call Moose Muhammad himself or Smitty and learn what it takes to be a next-level blocker on the perimeter or in the slot. 
That's important to people that watch tape and evaluate. That's going to be critically important to his success and his playing time moving forward. If he slops around in that department, which again, he doesn't do that, but in the pro game, it's a different beast. So he needs to impose his will on slot corners who are you know, looking up at him. He's typically the tallest guy and the physically most imposing guy along the skill position front line there. So if you're looking at him as a physique specimen, not a lot of corners out there are going to match up against him mano v mano and have the same level of physicality. Now, they might have the speed that Marshall may not, or the, the short area burst, or the ability to close quickly, or, or even the lack of separation Marshall may show against some of these corners. But he will out-physical just about anybody. Continue to work on the blocking. Brennan Zylstra is a catching machine. C.J. Saunders, uh, the receiver from Ohio State, who is a, I think he's like a 40-year-old rookie. <laughs> he's, he's like Brennan Stokely's uh, little brother. No, he's got an interesting past. You know, he was a, a grad assistant at OSU because of uh, some sort of deal that came up in his eligibility, and he ends up, you know, getting a trout here in Carolina. And he's so far looking more confident and ready to jump in and play than some people that have been on the roster for a while. He's got a chance. Um, Sam, you know, look, things were up and down a little bit. He, You know, there was, a, I believe, a pass on Monday's practice, if I'm not mistaken, where J.C. Horn once again made an impact. He got his hand on the ball, and Carter was able to pick it up uh, and pick it off. And then later in the practice, Sam bounced right back and very calmly got a touchdown to his good fan, uh, Dan Arnold, the tight end. So Sam has shown, again, it's early, it's camp. There's nothing really going on in terms of like high-level intensity at Walford. But it's all about execution, and it's 11-on-11, and he's executing. Uh, Denzel Perryman, uh, obviously, at linebacker, the soft tissue thing is still, um, he's not close to, to being back. They signed Josh Bynes, linebacker from um, Cincinnati, Baltimore. Had a little time there, too. Kind of a Perriman type, uh, a thumper inside, more of a run defender. Mike Backer uh, can fill that in. Julian Stanford um, has played a good bit of snaps. Clay Johnston was in for Shaq Thompson uh, two weeks ago, but Shaq has been back this week, and that's been a nice addition not only from a morale standpoint, but just from communication and, and from a stout perspective. He just He's a big guy, and he looks good out there, back in pads and, and ready to roll. Um, that's kind of a general overview. The offensive line, real quickly, we spent a lot of time on that. Taylor Moten spent some time at left tackle, obviously, because of Cam Irving's inavailability uh, due to the shoulder tweak. Um you guys have heard my opinion on this through, you know, radio interviews, <laughs> through my own little, you know, thoughts that I put out on Twitter. I don't think it's the best idea in the world to to limit Taylor Moten to the left side. I think they need to keep an open mind about it. I think it may come to a point where he might have to do it. But they signed Cam Irving very early in this free agent process, and they, it wasn't a vet minimum deal. They gave him a decent chunk. And I, I think 
what I would do and what they are going to do or what I anticipate they're going to do are probably two different things. But let me start with what I think they will do, and then maybe I can react to that. What I think they will do is continue to nurture Cam Irving. And unless this becomes a a, a thing of chronic absences and he just cannot get in the, the rhythm, they'll put him back in there when he does get over his little shoulder ding he's got here. And he will continue to run left side, and they will continue to honor his contract that was paid as such. Um, otherwise, why would they have signed him so early? Was it in anticipation of them drafting a, a left tack? I, I don't, I don't know. It wasn't a signing I was totally thrilled with, but I'm pulling for the guy to show me something on tape that resembles, uh, you know, a 16 game starting caliber left tackle who will keep. Sam Darnold's blindside relatively clean. His work in the run game is vital as well. The wide zone stuff they're going to run in the run game. So it's vital that that Cam Irving, if he's going to do this thing at left tackle, he's got to get healthy and stay healthy. Having a shoulder injury early on in camp, no matter how severe, I mean, you're missing reps. So Moten, you know, kicked out to left side. And that gave them an opportunity to look at it a couple of different options. They put Trent Scott at the right tackle spot. Matt Paradis um, were both out for personal reasons at practice a little bit. But, you know, Elfline, who has some versatility, not a great pass-blocking left guard in recent times, but did have the versatility to where, hey, as a rookie, he was a first-team all-pro, all-rookie team as one of the better interior linemen in the league and did a good job at center. Most important thing about this, and this is uh, you know one of the great things about this job, is networking and meeting fans, networking and meeting you know other guys out there who cover the game, but mostly former players, current and former coaches, scouts around the league, scouts around the college you know circuit, just football people who have helped me understand the game, not necessarily from a better perspective, but from a different perspective. Um, and they also serve as sort of reminders on as your guardian angel on your shoulder. That, hey, John, you're getting too carried away with individual analysis. You're getting carried away with the wrong thing. This smart individual who probably has spent more time in a football setting than you as a career has this fine point to share with you that instinctively you have always thought this, but you kind of lost sight of it. And here's what it is for me. Continuity on the offensive line versus individual talent. Continuity is more important than anything. You put five guys out there who are decent at that specific job, but keep them together for 16 games. You can work with that more easily than having one guy who is an all-pro left tackle Another guy who's a Pro Bowl right guard, but you have to use four or five different combinations of lineups because all of a sudden your left guard gets hurt, then you got to move right guard to left side, right tackle gets hurt, he's after the year, then you got to move left tackle to right side. So all you're doing there is you're moving chess pieces around where they don't belong. And as good as they might be, they don't belong on that side. Moten does not belong at left tackle. And it feels, again, like a half measure if they go that direction, move him there. Now, I said earlier this week that, hey, you know, they might have to. But they don't have to. They, I mean, they, look, if, if, you, if it's that bad at left tackle, 
This is why I want to see preseason games. Is Cam Irving as bad as Twitter thinks he is? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm very careful with players, man, because I look, here's the deal. Cam Irving, can we sit here and pigeonhole him as the number one problem at camp? Sure, you can do that. Sure, that's a narrative you can push, but that's not a fair narrative to push for him, for the entire team, or for yourself as an analyst. What what you, you should do is emphasize the importance of what you're looking at and focus in on the finer points of what you're witnessing on the field as a field reporter for the fans and put it into context that makes sense and is relevant. Uh, what's relevant to me is how these guys look together in a game setting. One-on-one drills, Brian Burns working on Irving. Look, of course Brian Burns is going to destroy Irving. He destroys everybody. So Irving, you know, with, with the long arms and sort of the, you know, look, I, I see some traits with him that I think could be really dominant. But I also see some some holes in his game that, from a technique perspective, from even an, I just, he's not a finisher. Like, Moten has that second gear. Um... He's not terrible. He's not bad. He's a serviceable left tackle. We've had a pretty good run of those around here for a while, masquerading as starters. So offensive line, again, just talking to some smart people around the league. One in particular is a really good friend of ours, um, a, an insider, a source around the league who actually is employed with a team and has been doing everything from coaching, evaluating, scouting for, for years now. Talk specifically about Carolina's situation. Share with me, look, whether they put Moten right side or left side, the most important thing is sticking with it. Quit ping-ponging people back and forth, especially your best player on the offensive line. So we'll have to see what happens there. I don't have any idea how the line will look on day one. I really don't. I don't think anybody in that building knows right now. I don't. Christensen continues to develop on the right side. You're going to see a lot of guys that have a lot of question marks get some big-time snaps in this preseason opener. And Matt Rule had talked about that in his presser, that we wanted to take some time and calibrate our practice schedule to fit the preseason game schedule. Since this is Matt's first year doing this, I think it was a good move on his part to take the time and mention to the press today that, look, we are not going to start our starters, and uh, it's just going to be that way. They're going to have to, you know, wait until week two and week three. It sounds like most of the players are pretty happy about it. Brian Burns had kind of made a comment that, Ooh, okay, we can handle that. Um, but there are some timing issues coming up with cut dates um, around the league that, that time out differently than in years past. And with a three-game slate instead of four... My guess is, and I get the sense from talking to people around the league, but also listening to Matt's comments, is the third preseason game might have some renewed emphasis um, in terms of starter involvement. The assumption I just made was, okay, the, the middle game is going to be the one that gets the heaviest rotation. That way the third game sort of serves as your new fourth game, and that becomes a little bit of a... Let's get your starters out by the first drive and 
let some young guys get some reps and have a little fun and get up out of here healthy. I don't know. I mean, I think they just, from from a health perspective, Matt has talked about this in his pressers. He um, had wanted to schedule the practices around the Colts and Ravens so Sam could actually, you know, work in the red jersey. And that, that was part of the thought process. He didn't want Sam getting hit. And I, I think he's, Matt has, again, a smart coach learns, man. What happened to Teddy last year? The FIO plays. Remember the figure it out. We talked about that. Matt's little acronyms. He was praising him early year for, you know, hey, tucking and running and taking off. And, and sure enough, Teddy's physique was not built for that long term. Teddy took the kind of beating to his knee that eventually wore his ass down over the last five weeks where he really had an audition. And I think when they size people up athletically, I talked to one scout that, that had mentioned how ecstatic Carolina was to, to get Darnold, and they had mentioned the physical traits. Sam is built better physically, I think, in a lot of ways than Teddy in terms of taking hits, delivering some punishment when he needs to, but only on occasion. But most importantly, being able to sustain you know, a hit without having to miss a week or two and then having to, quote, fight through it for two more weeks. That was the Teddy story last year, guys. The injury was against Tampa. He missed a game after that, the Detroit game. And then he comes back, and I don't know how ready he was, but he was playing. (laughs) So P.J. Walker had a decent game. They didn't have to go back to him, but they gave Teddy a shot. I'm telling you why they did it. I know they did it this way. They wanted to give Teddy one last five-game run to audition to see, okay, you know what? We made a big investment here. Is this the guy? And that he failed that test. Look, he was he was sore. The the knee did not feel great. There was some talk that it affected its trajectory and some the velocity and some of the throws. Okay, look, that's football. You gotta have a guy like Darnold, I think, who throughout the you know past few years, he hadn't been perfect. But it hadn't been terrible. And he's still a first-rounder, high-round pick. So I think that there's a real emphasis here on this preseason limiting Sam's uh, <laughs> exposure. Last thing they want is their latest quarterback investment, you know, down on the turf and, and having it. That's, that's a nightmare scenario. Honestly, if he, if he didn't play but a couple series, I'd at this point would be okay with it because, again, they have worked so hard on situational football at practice. His game reps are not as important to me as a guy like, you know, Dennis Daly or let's see Taylor Moten at the left tackle. What does that look like? Positional players out there, not necessarily skilled guys, but interior guys, want to see how they match up five on four against another defensive line or even in blitz pickup. How's the run game looking? How's McCaffrey looking? Okay, Chuba Hubbard, looking good in the return game up in Indy. Did some good things. Is he going to be the backup? Is it Bonifant? We'll have to see. So many fascinating battles. One last detail to share with you guys. Um, source of, of mine that, that we, we talk a lot. Um, this is a league source that is very closely connected to a lot of things happening around the NFL, but specifically Carolina's mindset way of thinking, way of operating, has talked to me a little bit about Jeremy Chin's positional alignment. 
And again, the depth chart was released this week, and a lot was made about the free safety designation for Jeremy Chin. And again, this individual with whom I spoke at length to the other night had frankly said the team is not interested in keeping him in the box to an excessive level because he took some thumps last year, and the and it that tends to take a bit of a toll on a young player, and he sort of is a positionless guy. So he's not a free safety necessarily. He's not a strong safety. Certainly not big enough to be an every down backer. He does roam, plays the joker, spies a lot, hand in the dirt, not really. Mugs up and blitzes, absolutely. Mentally, he was asked to do a lot in year one. I'm sure that was draining. But physically, it's a decent point. I went back and looked at some tape on, on Chin. So many good things. But again, there was a play against the Saints in the Superdome where Andrews Pete was pulling out on a screen and he, he was like, <laughs> he looked big compared to Chin and that's not easy. And he just plowed him and put him on the turf. That kind of stuff happened. Chin is a very aggressive physical guy. And as a box presence, he was taking and delivering a lot of impact. So when this source we had spoken with, you know, gave me some intel to, you know, to throw together, and I, of course, as a responsible reporter, said, hey, something we can share with our listeners and readers. I said, absolutely, you know, share it, please. Um, and this is what the quote was, quote, they want him to play less in the box because his body got so beat up last year, he will play some, but not a lot this year, quote. And that means not a lot in the box. And in the box, meaning strong safety traditionally, down low, overhang on the tight end, typically on the strong side, um, sometimes matched up man on a tight end. I think they still view, and this is something else this individual and I had spoken about throughout the night uh, in terms of evaluating players, we went back and looked at some of the Minnesota tape. And again, this is an individual that works in the league, in league circles, and has a firm understanding of how to evaluate talent and how the coaching game works. And he believes very strongly and has got sources of his own that would indicate that Carolina does have every intention of playing him at free safety in a more traditional role and giving him a chance to develop those skills in coverage. Because we all know he can thump and hit already. He can be a box guy. And I'm sure he'll still come up and do that stuff. But maybe give him more of a traditional role and keep him locked in to where maybe he can become, with the ball skills he has and the tremendous range and physicality, he can become a special one back there, folks. He can become a special one. He's just going to have to get used to some of the dynamics of playing the position at the level. He's got to keep everything in front of him. That's the biggest thing. But but again, that's just, I, I don't want to call that exclusive news. <laughs> But it was interesting in talking with this individual. We speak a lot uh, throughout, you know, here this football seasons, uh, creeping up and, and just reached out and wanted to get a quick question on Jeremy Chin. And that's sort of the intel I got back on that situation. Um, so I would say that let's take it one day at a time with Jeremy. Does any of that mean that it's going to go down exactly like that? No. So if we come back and get told that, hey, you said back there, source told you that it was going to, and then look, he's playing in the box. As we pointed out, there's a lot of nuance with how he is operating as a safety in this league, being asked to do more than, than most players are on the football field, and 
I thought that was really impressive on tape for Chin. So thus far, camp has been uh, not only solid and uh, clean, maybe until today's uh, fight broke out or yesterday's fight broke out, but it has also been spirited and there's been good energy. Uh, it has been a very organized, structured environment at Wofford. It's great for them to be back, I think, in that environment. Around some fans, the fans are getting a little more excited now. They're seeing some, some good things. But uh, this core, this 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 team, the superstars on this team, and they have some. Burns, Chin. Um, I'd still put Shaq in that category because he's got name recognition. He's been here for a while, and at his peak, when he used him the right way, and he's on his game, he's a dynamic guy. Uh, and you got guys on offense, DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson. Um, all of them share sort of the same common thread. They're very unassuming. They're very down-to-earth. But there's not a lot of Thomas Davis, Cam Newton, big personality types out there to carry that uh, spokesperson torch. <laughs> so it's hard to gauge on the field when you're there who are the leaders. But, guys, I'm telling you, it ain't about that. It's, it's about execution it's about coming into these preseason games and simulating live game action, seeing which of these players are built for the next level and can be a part of this rotation, and the, the ones that aren't going to make it. And those cuts will be made pretty soon here. And then when the Jets come to town on, you know, what is it, the 12th of, of September? Look, I haven't done too much homework on the Jets yet, but I've seen enough of what they've got. Carl Lawson, their, their edge menace, is, is going to present challenges for Cam Irving if that's a one-on-one -on -one matchup. So Lawson is one of the few bright spots on that roster for the Jets right now. He is a mammoth of an edge player and has tremendous traits. Gets to the ball fast, plays hard, plays with a mean streak. He's got a chance to do sort of a one-man wrecking crew thing where this Jets team coming in, folks, you know, with Zach Wilson... Obviously coming in a little late and still learning how to operate fully within the NFL structure, um, at least from schematics perspective and, and, and just doing the quarterback work from that side. The arm is there, no question. But then, you know, you look around the roster and it's just, it's a, it's okay. They got Beckton at left tackle. Van Roten's still there. But nothing sticks out as like, oh, this is a team that we're going to have to, to duel with and go down to the wire. No, you should really do some damage here and win a sound fundamental football game and let's roll from there. That's how the Panthers have always, traditionally at least, you know, a couple years being an exception, 05 comes to mind. Generally speaking, you have that kind of start to a season. Then you can start one week at a time having some optimism. Carolina had such an opportunity last year against the Raiders. They had a fourth or a four-down opportunity inside the plus side of the 50. First down, run. Second down, run. Third down, run. Fourth down, run with a fullback. Turnover on downs. They could have won the game on that drive. They did not trust their quarterback to be the one to do it. And they thought, let's put it in the hands of who we see as our best player on offense. That's Christian McCaffrey. Um... If that indeed was the thought process, and then context clues would lead me to believe that was at least part of it, that's an archaic, moronic way of doing that type of situational football. It's and that it also shows you, and we talked about this time, 
what's trust level with Teddy to where at that point your sphincter tightens up and you're, you're getting into a tighter personnel set and you're telegraphing run. It was awful. Really, this comes down to the football operations people and the coach and the players all the way down to the last guy that makes the cut. And this is the time of year where it gets fun. So what we'll do from here, throw this thing out to you here in a couple of hours on the old uh, Twitterverse, as well as the usual places where you can find our podcast, bluewirepods.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Pods, all that good stuff. Once again, Billy should be returning uh, our way overseas next week, and we'll reunite and start to prep for uh, another preview of the Ravens. The Ravens are coming to town next week. Holy shit. Just remember that. Yeah, the Baltimore Ravens. Johnny Harbaugh's. Tough guys. That's going to be, ooh, that might be some, some chippiness there. Matt Rule's going to bust out the old uh, <laughs> Sam Kennison voice. Oh, my God. John Ellis from One Panther Place and your friends here at Blue Wire, thanks again for listening to this late-night edition of the Roar Podcast. Hope you guys enjoy the big game on Sunday. We'll be back with another recap edition, breaking it all down. Have a great day. Enjoy Panthers football. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.